the course. We are dead. We are all dead. We were supposed to make the world a better place. What happened? I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I know kung fu. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. This whole thing is insane. This whole thing is insane. 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men of power want? More power. This is now the United States of Zombieland. This whole thing is insane. Man is evil, capable of nothing but destruction. Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? It's such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy Heresies, and welcome to the desert of the real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is, it just is. Especially with the latest AB Live, audio version for thee and this eternal now. The one and only esoteric Eddie joined us to discuss his new book, The Anunnaki Theorem. You know the topic, but we'll approach it from many exhaustive angles. Are the Anunnaki the engineers of humanity? How did the Sumerian civilization and mythology influence later humans? What are the parallels between Gnosticism and Sumerian lore? And much more. For good measure, we'll include the Book of Enoch and modern occultism in the mix. No one here gets out alive, except maybe for Enki. Thank you to those of you who support this Red Pill Cafeteria. You are amazing and your backing, company, and feedback help grow this podcast. We need Gnosis more than ever in this age of Hermes, Philip K. Dick world, and Gnostic times. Expect more violence, wars, rising addiction and suicide rates, mass depression, and societal collapse until more look inward while breaking the outward spell of Yaldi Baldi and his Epstein angels. You won't find this high-quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom, or many of my guests and their unique insights, anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. Don't forget my voiceover availability for any podcast, commercial, audiobook, documentary, or whatevs. I'll bring you stellar results with down-to-home professionalism. Other than that, let us to our latest AB Live. Write your own gospel, live your own myth. The Matrix is a system, Neil. That system is our enemy. When you're inside, you look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters. The very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still a part of that system and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inert, so hopelessly dependent on the system, that they will fight to protect it. Were you listening to me, Neo? Or were you looking at the woman in the red dress? I was... Look again. Reason? Welcome, everybody, to AB Live. My name is Miguel, and I am your Pompidus of Gnosis. Welcome, everybody, to this day of Mars, this Tuesday. And uh, for those of you who are watching on video and seeing the intro, the uh, great idea or the great conundrum of nipples for men is still an issue. And hopefully, perhaps, we will find out today if these engineers of humanity uh, fell asleep at the wheel because they gave human, they gave men nipples and 43 species of parrots. I mean, Enki, what were you thinking, my man? What were you thinking? You could have done much better 
than us little monkeys, especially the males with nipples and so forth. But anyway, I am simply wool gathering as you will. And tonight we're very excited because we will be talking about the Anunnaki with a, a book I really enjoyed, the Anunnaki Theorem by Eduardo Cano or Esoteric Eddie. Eduardo, ¿cómo estás? And bienvenidos. Hey, gracias. Estoy bien. I'm doing good. Glad to be back. Thank you. Thank you. Hello to everybody. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Uh, your show on Lucifer and your book was just amazing. Uh, one of the highest uh, viewed shows uh, in 2021 as the world went to hell. We wanted to find out more about Lucifer. So your research is definitely uh, resounding with a lot of people too. So keep it up. Uh, very excited. And with us too, we've got the Moondog Vance. Vance, all week I was wondering, will Vance have a pun for the Anunnaki? No, this will be the one time he's stumped, and because I, I couldn't think of him. What, what do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, <clears throat> as far as the nipples for men goes, that, that's a, you know, a little enky-panky. <laughs> <laughs> he, he nailed it. He nailed it. So... Good deal, man. Good deal. Well, awesome. Well, I see the chat room is already filling up very fast. Uh, we've got tonight sort of a combination of an interview and a presentation. We're just going to let it rip. As always, for all of you, if you have questions, we will definitely take your super chats. If uh, you don't have a super chat, please uh, write all caps, question marks. There are no guarantees we will get to you. Vance will try, but please don't uh, don't be all butthurt or anything like that. We're doing the best we can with our little, little Gnostic uh, team over here. So, And as far as uh, some house cleaning before we get this party started, uh, yeah, as always, support Eduardo and what he's doing. Get his books. His YouTube channel has got some very cool documentaries, well done, which gives you the visual part. And he just doesn't stick with, you know, European traditions, but he deals with uh, Mesoamerica and so forth. Like this show, A.M. Byte, for reasons that I'm not going to ask, uh, I'll say Hermes decided, this year has been a year of dealing with Mesoamerica. And we've done many shows. The Astronosis Conference dealt with it. We did a show just a few days ago on the Pueblo Indians and the Mayans and the cult of the scalp and astrotheology. Next week, we'll be dealing with the cult of the mushroom in Aztec uh, tradition. So for some reason, this needs to be done. And as I say, it's as the empire shifts, as the hologram shifts, as uh, Western society collapses under its own hubris, it's a good time to look at the past for our ancestors, the spirits of this land, uh, to find out cautionary tales because they had empires, they had corruption, they had evil, but they also had some great perspectives on the stars, the human condition, art. So we want to look at them holistically and learn from them, just like we want to learn from the Sumerians and all other people. One point in time, men with nipples fucking up as they go, and hopefully a little good comes with that. Um, I, uh, I just got back from uh, Portugal a few days ago, so I'm still a little jet-lagged. Uh, the family's been sick. Uh, my daughter brought some cold, and we all a cold, and we all got it. But so I'm getting back into it, and for those of you wondering, I haven't done a traditional show with a traditional intro, because with traveling and so forth, I had to schedule more live shows. I couldn't really record or produce while I was in Portugal. So there will be more traditional shows coming, but of course, a lot of great live shows, Finding Hermes, and everything else. Autumn will be filled with a lot of Gnosis, and uh, I will share some of my experiences there. For you, Revelations, like tomorrow we have our Finding Hermes group, so I'll be talking about my Santu Daime experiences with ayahuasca. Uh, all I can say right now is whatever you do, do not mix ayahuasca with the Greek Orthodox Jesus prayer. Because yeah, we did it and I, it went, I went to hell, literally went to hell. It was a complete, it was a real journey into hell. So, but I'll share more as we go, the different visions I have. So um, I think that's it. Yeah. I think now for you on YouTube, uh, 
please support. I think there's a super thanks button. I never see it on this channel, but if you want to tip, donate, whatever, it's there on any of the videos. Anything you want to offer to keep the lights of the Pleroma on. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. Uh, this Pompidus of Gnosis uh, doesn't have anything else to say except uh, give some cool questions to Eddie. So, Eddie, tell us about what brought you to write and release the Anunnaki Theorem. All right, all right. So uh, this is a re-release of the first book that I ever wrote. So um, I have two books um, under my resume, The Anunnaki Theorem, The Lucifer Mystery Revealed. But I originally published The Anunnaki Theorem back in 2018. Uh, so I was younger then, um, much more eager and less fortified as a writer. So the original publication was, it just sucked to say the least. Um, but after I, <laughs> after I released the Lucifer mystery revealed, which I actually spent two years writing and, and, you know, invested in having it, uh, professionally edited and all that, I decided to go back to my original work, my first book and do it some justice. So I spent this entire, uh, year or, you know, the, the earlier half of this year diving deep and just pretty much gutted the old book and rewrote an entire new book to do the topic justice. Awesome, man. Awesome. And yeah, in this book, uh, you're definitely uh, more personal about your life. I could certainly relate. Uh, you were, like much of us, um, a curious misfit who didn't fit. So tell us about that. I think uh, you talk about being a kid, raised Roman Catholic like Vance and I, and uh, you would wonder about hell. And I used to do the thing, same thing. I used to sit in the dark and scare myself like shitless about hell. It's like, oh, what happens now? Does God create a new body for me? And he just burns me for what happens after a billion years? Will I get used to the heat? You know, and you drive yourself crazy. So you had that too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, religion has always been the center of my studies um, with the esoteric and the occult because I grew up in a religious household, Catholic and Christian. And my entire life has revolved around the esoteric. I mean, I some of my earliest memories um, involve, you know, coming across knowledge or having experiences or having conversations with like my grandpa, for example, about aliens and stuff like that. So Ever since I was a kid, I've, I've always been open-minded and always aware that there was more to this life and that there was more hidden um, behind the Bible and its stories. And uh, I was always uh, uh, an anti-establishment person um, ever since I was young, always getting into trouble, not so you know privy to listening to uh, authority and stuff like that. So having both of those attributes as a young person, you know, diving deep and always wanted to look more into things and also being anti-establishment. Um, that was basically the perfect recipe to set me off onto this esoteric path of always wanting to, to look into things myself and not just going for what the mainstream historians and scholars and whatever were, were telling us the truth was. Good deal. Yeah. And I think we are making a difference for generations, for example, my children are being raised Catholic. That's uh, the deal we, I made with my wife, and that's fine. But tonight I was very happy. My 10-year-old daughter, Evie, came up to me and said, I want, I know what I want to be for Halloween. I said, what? And she said, Coraline from the movie, which is based on Neil Gaiman. <laughs> I was like, that's the, you know, the greatest Gnostic childhood film you could do. And Coraline is this, she is a Sofianic character. I was like, yes. Winning, winning on the underground, underground, slowly but surely. But uh, yeah, and you talk about uh, what you were staring at a dollar bill and you're like, holy crap. That also yeah. uh, sent you on a, on a rabbit hole too. Yeah, it's like everything came to a head right around 2006 for me. So um, I was in, it was the summer going into the seventh grade for me at that time. And um, so I was it was a melting pot of just all different experiences. So I was getting into cannabis for the first time around then, as crazy as that sounds. But that was normal from where, from where I came up. Um, so I was getting into cannabis. I was listening to a lot of underground hip hop music that spoke about a lot of these things in, in the, uh, the songs. And for the first time was reading and researching these things on the Internet, you know, early YouTube days, early, um, you know, just like new age stuff. And so me and my cousin, we, we love to sit there and just talk about deep things. And for the first time ever, I was just looking at a dollar bill 
And I started looking at it and was just like, man, what is all this stuff? Like, what does it mean? Because I heard some artists speaking about it in songs, uh, specifically like Immortal Technique, who played a huge role in, in my waking up as a young person and like Jedi Mind Tricks. You know, so I would sit there and be like, man, what what are these seals? What are these symbols? So we decided to start looking into that on his big bulky computer that he had back in the day. And um, I was I remember just sitting there for hours and hours, like just going down a rabbit hole, like what Knights Templars, Freemasons and all these things in my mind just ever since then has just been open to this influx of information. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, well, what was the question? Were there any uh, outside things that also changed you? A lot of people, especially younger people, 9-11, the 2008 crash, the Iraq war, which you talk about in your book. It's always very interesting that as some conspiracy theorists said, the Iraq war was because things disappeared from the museum and Saddam himself wanted to raise the glory of Babylon and Sumer and you know he wanted that power and these things disappeared and you we both know that we all know the elite love these artifacts for whatever shenanigans they do but uh, do you uh, any outside things that really woke you up or made you pause at uh, the official narrative of our world yeah i mean i didn't have like a huge 911 event I mean, I remember 9-11. I was like in the third or fourth grade um, when that happened. And I remember uh, just the adults being concerned and that I just remember feeling that something, there was a shift in our world. And I was old enough to know a little bit of politics. And for for whatever reason, I knew at that time that George Bush was bad. And again, I was a very vulgar and, and crazy kid. So, um, and I loved rock music. I still love rock music. So I remember making a song about 9-11 and uh i don't even know like how i came up with this but i remember making a song called where the fuck were you when 9-11 happened (laughs) and i would just play it to my friends and they just loved it and so i don't know how or why but i just knew that that something huge had happened and there was a huge shift in everything and that george bush was not to be trusted but for me primarily being the youngest of four kids older sister two older brothers i was always you know, getting all these this new music and new information and being influenced by them. And I was heavily influenced by Pink Floyd and Hendrix and Bob Marley. Yeah. So the whole idea of the wall and the government, like, so for all <laughs> of that to be happening at that time in my life, I just, I just knew early, or as early as the third grade, that the government was not to be trusted. And that played a huge role in how I would develop as a person. Um, for example, in high school, many years later, my first clothing brand that I ever had, which I have tattooed on two places on my arm, on my body, um, was uh, Kill Gov, standing for Kill Government. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's it's been discontinued, but there are some people out there from my hometown and stuff in SoCal that that still rep it and you know still have the jackets and beanies and stuff. Very cool, very cool. Love your vibe, man. All right. Well, uh, I see the uh, the audience is filling up. Good to see you, Anders. It's uh, good to see you. I'm sure you're up late. Uh, great musician. Uh, good to see Statira. I don't want to say her real name. H.P. Lovecraft is joining us. Always good. Who else is there? Gnosis Junkie, how you doing? I'm trying to just scroll down here. Well, a good group, and I'm sure there'll be some good questions tonight. So, but I will uh, say, too, if I may, uh, sure. Um, I did like get into psychedelics early, too, as a young person. And, and of course, anytime you do that for the first time, that's just like, well, that's mind-blowing because you realize that the brain and the mind are capable of um, things that you never thought. You know, so psychedelics played a huge role, too, in my early life and the paranormal, too. I grew up with like strange paranormal activity and still do sometimes and uh, try to keep that at bay. I try not to pay too much attention to paranormal stuff because it can mess with your mind and mental health issues and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of strange little things like that all throughout my life, you know, that played a role in this, too. Yeah, it's a journey. It's all by design. You're awakening. So awesome. Uh, well, let's get into some, uh, as Van says, anky panky. Let's get to uh, one of the, you start with one of the central ideas is digging the source. What is that? And what did you come discover about uh, the Anunnaki? Yeah, sure. So the book is pretty much um, a brief 
you know, chronological expose of, of how the concept of God even began. You know, where did it all start? And how did we end up with monotheism? So that's pretty much the mission of the book is how did we end up with monotheism? Where did this whole idea of one God really come from? And so when we go back in time and dig through all of history and, and watch it um, unfold, if you will, through all the writings and the historical events, then you can trace it all back to a certain source where it all started. And so in the beginning, in the first chapter, I kind of just detail some of the more famous creation stories and show how they all have a similarity and where those similarities might have began originally. For example, um, one of the oldest religious texts that we have available to us um, are the pyramid texts that were written in Old Egypt, uh, this, the Old Egyptian script, in the third millennium BC. And they were supposedly constructed under King Unas, uh, who was the last of the fifth dynasty. And these were officially studied uh, by French archaeologists and Egyptologists um, Gaston Maspero in the uh, 1800s. And so these are some of the oldest religious texts still available to us, about 4,000 different lines. Oh, and sorry, I should mention, uh, uh, Miguel, the first four images in that folder um, are, are the pyramid text, if you want to throw those up. Yeah, let's, Number, let's take a look at them. One through four. So, uh, yeah, so those are the pyramid texts. So it's, there's, I think, like a few different pyramids in uh, Saqqara, Egypt. And inside of them, there's just they're just riddled with all these writings, about 4,000 lines. So um, images one through four, you can just kind of just scroll through them. Um, and they, they tell what they are is they're, they're random spells and incantations pretty much meant to be chanted as uh, the pharaoh is being buried or, or you know, through the ceremonial burial um, ritual. And uh, it's basically preparing the soul. What they are is preparing the Pharaoh's soul for the journey in the afterlife and helping that soul be taken there. Very strange stuff. And they talk about, they don't, obviously they don't, they don't mention heaven because that's a later word, but they talk about the, the, the destination for the soul of being this place called the field of reeds, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, of course is an imagery that they would be familiar with being by the Nile river, you know, with, with the reeds and stuff like that. But they also call that destination um, the place of imperishable stars. And, and for anybody who's read Sitchin, um, who obviously is uh, the guy who brought us the whole Anunnaki stuff. Zechariah Sitchin. Yeah, yeah Sitchin. He, he used uh, a lot of this stuff in his book, Stairway to Heaven, which primarily focused around the Egyptian aspect of the Anunnaki to corroborate his theories and claims about Nibiru or Planet X. But uh, in his book, he calls it the imperishable star. And he says, look, in the pyramid text, they talk about the imperishable star. So, you know, that's Planet X, Nibiru. But if you actually read it, it doesn't say imperishable star. It says place of imperishable stars, plural. Mm. But so it, it's a strange text. And also um, coupled with, with many other stories throughout Egyptian uh, history, there's a strange story told about the creation of the universe. And in that story, we have this watery darkness as it's described this this water of chaos water of blackness this plasma if you will and out of that watery darkness was born this uh, the first consciousness by the name of atum a-t-u-m and atum was androgynous and, and then atum self-creates itself and then after atum the elements are, are born like air and earth and then after the elements the gods are born and then eventually humans are born and in later egyptian writings uh it is told that the humans or certain humans try to kill the god ra engaged him in, in war or battle and because of that the gods were ashamed of the humans and uh, pretty much killed many of them or something like that, and then left. They left to heaven or the place of imperishable stars, and then left us here to our own devices. And so that's the Egyptian aspect of it. And of course, there's a correlation with that in the Bible when the Bible in Genesis states that, and uh, I'll quote here, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, 
and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So in a lot of these ancient cosmologies, we have this idea of this darkness, this blackness, uh, uh, but it's like this watery substance. And then out of that, the consciousness of God is born. And also like God in, the, in Genesis, Atum was also able to speak life into existence. You know, as, as the first few passages of Genesis state, you know, God is basically speaking life into existence. You know, he said there will be light and there was light, so on and so forth. And the the vocal aspect of creation is, is seen throughout a lot of these cosmolo cosmological tales and is also kind of tied in with the whole idea of the Aum chant or the Om chant. The Om chant in Hinduism and Buddhism, um, if I understand it correctly, is the underlying frequency in all things. And no. that frequency is, is the frequency of the creator. So when we are chanting Om, we are tuning and harmonizing ourselves to that original vocalized um, manifestation. Yeah, should just let me interject a second. That's uh, as April DeConnick says. That's the big telltale sign that the Gnostics were might have been influenced more by Egypt. They came from Egypt. There's many reasons, but theologically, because in their texts, like the Nascenes, the creation starts in this moisture with this serpent that comes out, and uh, a tomb also uh, he inseminates his own mouth and gives birth, and there's this sort of sexual thing in a lot of the Gnostic texts, how creation, which you don't find really in Hellenistic lore and others. So there's some hints right there, but uh, yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, so another religion, old religion that I detail is, is Zoroastrianism. And its legendary beginnings go back to the second millennium BC, um, but they're usually agreed to about 600 BC. And so Zoroastrianism follows the beliefs and teachings of the prophet uh, Zarathustra or Zoroaster. And prior to Zarathustra um, bringing his revelation, the, his, his kingdom, his people were polytheistic. And he, he comes from Iran. He was an Iranian prophet. So the old Persian world that he, that he came out of was polytheistic. Um, but uh, he was raised up by the priesthood in his early teen years. And right around 30 years old, he had a vision by a river where he saw the emissary Vohu Maha. And Vohu Maha spoke to him about the creator of all or the benevolent God of all um, known as Ahura Mazda. And, but Ahura, and later on, Zarathustra would also talk to Ahura Mazda and Ahura Mazda would let him know that there were two two uh, forces in this dualistic universe. There was um, Ahura Mazda and Angra Mainyu. And so there was two forces in the universe, according to Zarathustra, and they were, they were, both, they were both sentient. You know, the good God, the, the God of good light, and then the God of uh, evil thoughts or evil deeds, Angra Mainyu. And... So Zoroastrianism, it is, its legendary roots go back to 1400 BC with its writings and its ideals, but it was in the early 4th century of the Common Era that the Sasanian Empire um, of the Persians uh, officially wrote down the books of Zoroaster, which are known as the Avesta. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first European translation of the Avesta was, was in 1771. Now, the oldest parts of the Avesta are the Gathas, which are said to be a section of uh, writings and teachings directly from Zarathustra. The rest are kind of like added on. But uh, Zoroastrianism has certain hints going back to the Rig Veda, the Rig Veda. Mm -hmm. And Zoroastrianism and Hinduism both share a common ancestor um, philosophically, religiously, and even culturally in certain other aspects and maybe even ethnically. And that cultural ancestor is the uh, Indo-Europeans or specifically, um, well, yeah, the Indo-Europeans. And so the Indo-Europeans, as the theory goes, are the originators or the progenitors of all pretty much Western civilizations like the Germanic, the English, the Russian, um, so on and so forth, Anglo-Saxon and so on. And so the Persian culture um, stems from these Indo-Europeans and the, one of the oldest texts belonging to the Indo-European people that we have belongs to the Hittites going back to about fourth, the fourth uh, millennium BC. And the Hittites spoke of this storm God and they called him um, Seo Sumin, which roughly translate as our God. 
and Sios, meaning God, could also be an etymological root for the Indo-European word Dios, which also became the Greek Zeus, Zeus and the Latin Dios. And that's coming from the uh, Hittite Anita text. So the uh, Indo-Europeans also had a branch known as the Indo-Iranians. That's the word I was looking for earlier. So the, the early Persians and Zoroastrianism stemmed from the Indo-Iranians, who were a branch of the Indo-Europeans. Again, this, this uh, theoretical group of uh, nomadic tribal people who held the source and, and, and uh, who were the originators for a lot of the Western language and culture. But what makes what I'm, what I'm getting at is that one of the oldest Indo-Iranian texts is the Rig Veda. The Rig Veda is the oldest of the Vedas, which influenced Zoroastrianism and later Hinduism. And it was written uh, probably around 1700 to 1100 BC. And the Rig Veda has a creation story known as the Nasadiya Sukta, um, which I have a version of on my YouTube channel, which is beautiful. It's like a, I think like an hour long of, of it just being looped. It's, it's a chant. Again, all these all these creation stories back in the old world uh, were meant to be chanted, and but like the uh, Egyptian version and the the biblical version in the Nasadiya Sukta, the first in, in before anything is created, there is this watery darkness, mm-hmm. and out of that watery darkness, there the first con- consciousness is self created, and I don't know how to say that this word or this name, um, but it's spelled T V. S-A-T-R. So it's like, I, I've just been saying Satad. You know, there's probably some, one of the, one or two of the words or letters are, are silent. I don't know which one. <laughs> but uh, I saw this, this, this being Satad. He was like Atum or, or the biblical Yahweh. He was self-created. And then after Satad was self-created out of this watery darkness, then the elements are created. And then the archetypal gods are created. And then humans are created. So you have all these different versions, the Egyptian, the Indo-Iranian, the biblical one. Now, going further back than all of those is the Enuma Elish, which belonged Mm. to the Sumerians, which was uh, later rewritten by the Babylonians. Uh, I think that the best version we have is actually the Babylonian version, the most complete version. And this tale was actually so important that it used to be played out every year at the Babylonian New Year Festival known as Akitu. And uh, coming from L.W. King's 1902 translation, we see, again, the similarity as I'll quote here. When in the height heaven was not named and the earth beneath did not yet bear a name, there was the primeval Apsu and the mother of the gods, Tiamat. Their waters mingled together. So again, you have this this just emptiness, this void. But in this version, there are the two gods, Apsu and Tiamat, and their waters, whatever that means, mingled together. And so, uh, of course, the origin for all this is the Sumerian version here, as we see in the Enuma Elish. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is, again, Sitchin uses this tale, the Enuma Elish, to corroborate his Nibiru and Planet X theories. and actually, in the Enuma Elish, it, we do see the word Nibiru mentioned towards the end of the epic. And it is mentioned as um, the shining star in the skies. But it's it's not like apparently uh, like this planet, this rogue planet, as Sitchin makes it out to be. But nonetheless, in, in the epic, Tiamat, is, she's the protagonist, or sorry, she's the antagonist. And then she gets cut in half by the protagonist which is Marduk. And interestingly, as she gets cut in half, one half of her is used as a firmament. And so this is where the biblical ver- idea of the firmament comes from. Again, from L.W. King's version, I'll quote here. He split her up like a flat fish into two halves. One half of her he established as a covering for heaven, not to let her waters come forth. And... um yeah, but isn't uh, the reason they fight, isn't it because the gods were being noisy and Tiamat and her concert couldn't sleep? It's a, it's a great story. And obviously yeah. the, the idea, Tiamat is, represents nature, Marduk represents civilization, order, agriculture. What's gotten out of hand in our days is like, I keep saying in the show, we need Tiamat needs to, you know, come back and 
obviously you see this story all over the world, right? I mean, even in the Bible, Yahweh battles Leviathan. He plays the role of Marduk and Leviathan is Tiamat or the, you know, the serpent goddess, if you would. Yeah, yeah, it's a long tale, but yeah, so it's Apsu, Tiamat, and then their like little messenger or little buddy, Gaga. Um, and then you have uh, six children, um, and then those six children become noisy or, or rebellious, and so Tiamat goes against them. And then, and then out of nowhere, the protagonist, uh, this rogue hero, um, who's known as Marduk in the Babylonian version, comes in. And so, as you read it for face value, it sounds like you're reading a tale about these gods fighting. But as Sitchin saw it, which might be true, it's, it's more like an astral theological tale. It's actually telling us how our solar system came to be, because mm -hmm. you have Apsu, the sun, Tiamat, the right. mythological watery planet which would later become earth after it was cut in half gaga mercury which is the closest to the sun and then you have the six other gods which are the six other planets and interestingly interestingly after tiamat is cut in half as it says here again one half of her he established as a covering for heaven not to let her waters come forth and that's basically paraphrasing the Bible when he's, when God is making, you know, the earth and the planets. And he says that he set up a firmament to separate the waters from the waters. And Sitchin saw the firmament or that, that covering as being the asteroid belt, which actually separates the inner planets from the outer planets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it should be mentioned too. I think uh, some say that Marduk also plays the role of the first Jesus because I think in, in, he gets swallowed by Tiamat and like uh, Drax and Guardians of the Galaxy too. He's able to come out and defeat her or break her open. So, so I said that's where you get sort of the the hero that has fallen and resurrects at the last second. Yeah, there's a lot there. There's a lot that was spawned from that. And again, the whole Nibiru aspect of it, because again, Sitchin uses this to corroborate his theories on Nibiru. So at the end of the epic, after Marduk kills Tiamat and everything, he, he's praised by the gods and he's praised by 50 different names. And one of those names is Nibiru. They say he is Nibiru, uh, the shining star in the skies that shepherds the other gods or something strange like that. But there are 49 other titles that he's given. So I, I just think it's a little disingenuous to, to just accentuate the Nibiru one as if, like, that's evidence for Planet X. <laughs> and then they say there's Gaga, Radio Gaga. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but uh, Marduk doesn't become the king of the gods, does he? I mean, it's uh, what's the name? Anu becomes the king of the gods, doesn't he? Well, in the Babylonian version, Marduk is, is the king of the gods. He's the king Anu's of the gods. Yeah, Anu's phased out pretty early in human history. Um, he was like old, old Sumerian. But he's always in the background, and even like up to like the Hittite era. And uh, but he's always in the background. He's he's mentioned here and there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Marduk was yeah, was a patron of Babylon, and as history says, Cyrus bribed uh, the priest. That's why Cyrus was basically took Babylon with barely a shot fire, very little casualties because he was so, he was a smart guy, you know, bribe people, bribe the priests and the administrators and and the cops, you know, like the CIA does where they they bribe the police and the army and say put down your weapons and then they can just walk in. So yeah, and as you kind of mentioned earlier, um so the whole thing with Tiamat, like how we need her now to, you know, quell everything that's going on. Balance. That whole thing, there's an interesting take on this by uh, uh, a scholar by the name of Reverend A.E. Watham, which I detail in my new book. And he was writing from the early 1900s, and he has this essay known as the Yahweh to Home Myth. And he realized this correlation with the Enuma Elish and the early story of Genesis. And he, what he realized was that the biblical writers knew about the Enuma Elish and were cleverly, cleverly if that's a word, um, <laughs> but they were basically, you know, writing, rewriting it so that from their perspective, their God, instead of Marduk, was the one who was subduing Tiamat. And I'll, I'll quote from his essay right here. After first creating light, Yahweh next proceeds to subdue or bring under control the surging waters of the turbulent abyss. He then divides it into two portions, making of the one of the upper and of the other, the lower ocean. To keep the upper waters in their place, he creates a dome-like support, rakia, correctly rendered in 
all our versions firmament. So in that story in Genesis, it's, it's just a retelling of the Enuma Elish with Yahweh envisioned as Marduk now. So it's Yahweh, the, the yeah. God of the Jews now, who's the protagonist, who is subduing the waters and the chaos of the early creation. Yeah, I think uh, Marduk is really the real identity of Yahweh. I think if you read like uh, Margaret Barker's work, The Great Angel, the original Yahweh was sort of this desert demon or angel. He was vampiric, but he was nurturing. He took care of, he took care of the tribe, just like these entities took care of their tribes. And then slowly the priests kind of brought in Marduk because Marduk represented civilization you know like the monty python roads the wine all the good stuff that you wanted to start building a civilization have money in the bank and crops and all that but to do that to have a civilization you have to subjugate nature to subjugate nature unfortunately you have to marginalize women that's just the way it is and we're having this talk because we're trying to find other solutions where tiamat can come back to the table right Absolutely. And to wrap it up on, on that subject, what was fascinating, too, is uh, Reverend A.E. Wadham um, suggested or I guess realized that the word used in the Bible, the Hebrew word used in the Bible for, for abyss or darkness is Tahom. And apparently Tahom is actually like a Hebrew cognate to Tiamat. So it's almost like right in our face that Tiamat is actually rewritten into the Bible. Yeah, that is very cool. Awesome. Vince, do you have a question or from the audience? Yeah, um, uh, no questions from the audience yet, but uh, I was wondering, um, how about uh, the Babylonian uh, Talmud? Is there any links there that can you know give us hints as to how the transfer between you know the Babylonians and Sumerians uh, happened into the Old Testament? I don't have much to say on the Babylonian Talmud. Um, I wish I did, but I kind of touch on the subject somewhat towards the end of the book, which we can get into later um, when I show kind of like how monotheism was instituted and why it was instituted. Because the Babylonian Talmud came fairly early in the institution of, of uh, Judaism, right along with the Torah. And yeah. what, what made Judaism so strong and strong today is its institutionali uh, institutionalization um, of, of the Torah and being able to organize all its people and the priesthood. But there's a lot of factors that played a role in that historically. For example, when they were released from the Persians, um, uh, from the Babylonian captivity, the Persians were tolerant of them. The Persians mm -hmm. were, were colleagues of them. They, they allowed yeah, them Cyrus to express- Cyrus helped them build the temple, the second temple. Yeah, yeah so, so right out of the Babylonian captivity, uh, Cyrus allowed them to go back home or stay in Babylon. So some of them stayed in Babylon and continued a priesthood there. And then so by the time the Greeks came in, they were already fortified as a priesthood. They knew what they were doing. They had their people locked down in this institution, you know, for better or for worse. And there are tales that, that I mentioned in the book that when Alexander the Great showed up, to conquer the Persian Empire, he actually had immense respect for the priesthood, the, the Judaic priesthood, and actually bowed down before one of their leading priests. And, you know, there's a huge respect between the Greeks and, and the Judaic world. Of course, a lot of other things happened and stuff, too, that, that were uh, caused tensions, but they carried on. Um, into the Roman era. Again, the Roman allowed them to do their thing. And so after the old world was destroyed, you know, the Romans, the Greeks and the Persians, after they were destroyed, um, the Jews kept going. The, the Judaic institution kept going. And because they were able to survive all of those epics in time, they've been able to be as successful as they are today. Cool, cool. All right. Well, anything from your presentation you want to show? I'm surprised nobody's asking you. Nobody in the group is asking you straight up, do you think the Anunnaki are aliens? Because they come <laughs> up with the idea of engineering humans as slaves, which is, again, that the Gnostics took that. Other religions, yeah, the, the Greeks did take it. I mean, Zeus had uh, Prometheus create humans to be his slaves, basically, to be servants. So it was in the air, but the Anunnaki were really one of the first ones, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was going to actually transition into like the creation stories. Uh, so all of that was just pretty much prepping everybody to understand that the creation stories 
all go back to the Sumerian version. Mm-hmm. You know, they all they all exaggerated or added on or fanatical versions of the original Anuma Elish. So um, if we take that into understanding, then everything kind of starts to make sense. And I always use the flood story as like a key example of that. So, of course, the flood story in the Bible is one God being hesitant to kill us off, eventually agreeing to save us through the bloodline of Noah. But we now know without without any doubt that that was borrowed or re- revised through the Sumerian tale of Atrahasis. Mm-hmm. And in that tale, it's two gods, not one God, two brother gods, you know, debating whether or not to kill us all off. And it's one God, Enki, who cleverly, there I go with that word again, who, uh, you know, decides to... Um, save us you know through atrahasis so if we understand that you know that all these religions stem from the sumerian tales and mythology then uh we can start to kind of start to finally answer a lot of these bigger questions so going with human creation so there are texts from the sumerians that talk about talk about us being created by them on a from a few instances at least from what's available to us and there's a Sumerian Akkadian text, uh, a bilingual text known as the creation of humankind. And I'm going to quote directly from that right now. <clears throat> and it says, let us create humankind from their blood. Um, it was some Anunnaki that are la- earlier mentioned in this text. Their labor shall be labor for the gods to maintain the boundary ditch for all time to set the pickaxe and work basket in their hands, to make the great dwelling of the gods worthy to be their sublime sanctuary for celebrating the gods' festivals as they should. So right there, you know, they they made us from their blood. They made us from Anunnaki blood to, to labor for them. And that is reflected in the Bible um, to a certain extent. You know, God creates us in his own image, um, you know, image, as Sitchin would say, is his DNA, it's blood, it's, I mean. Nipples exactly. for men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God's like, I got nipples, you guys got to have nipples. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and there, there's a lot, there's other stories that that share the same same thing. You know, there's another one known as Enki and Ninma. And, and the Enki and Ninma text, the gods, the lower ranking gods are the ones doing all the labor but then they get pissed off. And they're like, yo, we don't want to do this anymore. So they petition for Enki and Ninma, the scientists, to create some surrogate AI worker. So in that text, which is thousands of years old, they decide to go to their laboratory and create us out of a mixing of blood and what they call clay, which could be actual clay or it could be some term lost to us or just some metaphorical term. But they make us out of the mixing of their blood and clay. And obviously, the Bible got that whole idea of uh, making Adam out of clay from this. Yeah, and also, it wasn't like a straight line. It's not something that they made Eduardo and Miguel and Vance. And, ooh, look at these guys. We made the perfect human. No, they were mistakes, right? Uh, they created some deformed and uh, handicapped humans. But it was just very nice. These humans still had a place in society, which I thought is very cool that in Sumerian society, not like the Greeks that killed off, uh, you know, they were, as they say, ableist. But in Sumerian society, if you were disabled, you could still be participate in the culture and be a productive member of the society. Yeah, 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 exactly. In that text, they go through a series of, of mistakes. They create like these deformed people and it, it talks about it in the text, like um, somebody who like doesn't have arms and some other guy, which strangely enough, like, you just can't stop urinating, like just these weird defects until they eventually perfect it. So there's obviously some scientific process here. It's not like they're just these magical beings who wave a wand and create us. You know, there's some process going on yeah, here. That's why it's so science fiction. It's very, there's a laboratory <laughs> kind of. And he's Hackers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. So um, I'm looking at the photos now. We skipped a bunch, but it's it's all good. They're just like random pictures just to kind of like illustrate so some can, of what we're talking well, about. Well, I was still on four. Yeah, it was, it was my, that was my bad. I forgot to, to say next photo and stuff like that. But right, I think right now we're on. Oh, night. Yeah, there's wanted- Zoro. Yes, there's Zorro. Yep. That's the, yes, okay. Ah, uh, there's the. Indo-European okay. migration. We, all, we need a refresher sometimes during the Well, this is interview. interesting. Leave it right there, for example, because I've been talking to a friend of mine and she's from Ukraine or her family is and she was 
talk about how interesting that there's so much attention to Ukraine right now. And I never realized until we started talking recently that there's a lot of interesting history with Ukraine, like going all the way back thousands of years. And as you can see, like the Indo-European migration came from that center area. Just a thought. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, there's always a there's always an occult mystic angle to this. Somebody's looking for treasure or artifacts or if they claim this land, they get magical powers. It's, it's the same shit with every war. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, and this is what? That, oh, that's the Rig Veda. With uh, the uh, yep. Enuma Elish there. And then, yep. Right. Who are those lovers? <laughs> that's, that's supposed to be uh, Apsu and Tiamat. Oh, well, they look very human. Do-do-do. Right okay. there, that's uh, when I was talking about Reverend A.E. Watham, that's Yahweh subduing um, Leviathan, who some scholars think is a revisioning of Tiamat. Because in right. literally in Sumerian texts or Sumerian glyphs, you'll see Marduk just like that, slaying a dragon. Let's look at some other imagery. And there's the firmament, the hammered out bracelet, as it's sometimes called, aka the asteroid belt, separating the lower waters planets from the from the upper waters, the outer planets. And you say that Zechariah Stitchin, I think he says in uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah story that the two angels were Anunnaki. Where's he getting yeah. that idea? It's like <laughs> Yeah, so he stretches a lot of things because well in his <laughs> in his mind, and as I understand it too, it's like all of these tales, all these Abrahamic faiths, you know, specifically the tales coming from the Abrahamic faiths and some of them outside of that are all pretty much borrowing or retelling or even adding on to the Sumerian mythology. Right. You know, it's it's like there's only one human history, right? There's only one human history. And as far as we know right now, the one we're currently in goes back to about you know, 9,000 BC or whatever, but there's only one human history. So if all throughout human history, there are these deities visiting us and all have similar attributes and messages and, and experiences, then they obviously have to be the same deities. So in his mind, it's like if when the Bible is talking about these angels who are physical men visiting right. Abraham and Lot, you know, a couple thousand years ago, th they of course, were none other than the Anunnaki, who were also being talked about a few thousand years ago from con contemporaneous uh, cultures. Yeah, for sure. And we'll definitely uh, get, you got a good section on the book of Enoch, but we can get on that later on uh, or when you want, whenever you want. And what do we have here? This is uh, the creation of humans. Yeah. And the humans, yeah, it's... Uh, She's called the mother of the living, which the Bible takes. And then it's the Gnostics were closer because she is, I think, superior to Adam, which is what in the Gnostic text, Eve is either equal or superior to Adam. Let's see. Well, that's uh, Enki Ninma. Um, that's a sketch from, uh, from a Sumerian tablet. Uh, so that's Enki Ninma getting ready to make mankind. Hmm. There's, Is that uh, the laboratory? <laughs> yeah, super expensive. <laughs> Maybe they were making COVID too. Oh, I'm going to get killed <laughs> by the algorithm. I'm going to get censored. I shouldn't have said that word. Yeah, uh -oh. Nina and Enki were making the Rona in their thing. All right. So and now we got what? Colonial times? Yeah, we could pause there. So just real quick, I, just, I think it's important to talk about, you know, how we even discovered Sumer. You know, and how we even deciphered Sumerian, you know, because uh, it's important, I think, at least as from an educational standpoint, yeah. because we we had no idea about the Sumerians and all of this stuff prior to the 1800s. They were lost in time. So a lot of this stuff is still somewhat fresh. It's still new. And that's why it's been difficult to have the mainstream media, mainstream historians and stuff like that integrate this into our history. But within the 150 years uh, since we've discovered the cuneiform scripts of Sumer, um, only about 10% have been deciphered. And there are wow. over tens of thousands held in different collections around the world. 
And it is estimated that about 500,000, so half a million, if not a million, have been found. So there's at least probably like a million that have been found all throughout the Middle East, you know, uh, modern Mesopotamia. But only about 10% of that uh, has been publicly translated, you know, if that. So there's a lot that we still don't know or there's a lot that is being held from us. Um, There's still a lot. There's still a lot. But we discovered it in the 1800s, and there were certain scholars that stand out, such as J.S. Buckingham, uh, Sir Henry Laird, who were among the first to excavate some stuff there and put up whole projects to continue excavating. But what allowed what allowed us to go there and do these excavations was that the in the early, early 1800s, the Ottoman provinces of uh, modern-day Near East, Syria, Palestine, and Iraq became open more open to foreign travelers. So because of that, you know, some of these early scholars and, and whatnot went over there and started digging around and found this stuff. And fairly quickly, as we started to um, translate it, we realized that this was a gold mine in human history. And what made it possible to and to uh, translate all of this stuff and decipher it was the Behistun inscription. So if you go to... Um, Photo number 23. It's a photo of the uh, yeah, number I got, tw- I got, I got 23. Wait, is that it? Am I too far? Too- yeah, yeah. It's photo number 23. Well, this one's 23. What the heck? Uh, yeah, no, the file name should be actual 23. It might be like yeah. Flipped around on. Let me look at my. Where is it? Do, 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 do. I can look real quick. So I have all these things. Yeah, you're here. super ahead, though. 23. Where are you? 23. Well, I'll keep oh, going I, as yeah, you. Okay, uh, maybe I can do. Hold on. Let me try this. I'll do. Uh, I can do a screenshot. Yeah, it's something got lost. Let me remove you. Let me do a, sheet, a screen share. This is the one, right? Yeah, there we go. Yep, so that's the Behistun inscription. And so it was made by King Darius um, around 522 to 486 BC in eastern Iran. And it details a victory uh, made by King Darius. And it it, uh, details this victory in three different languages, Old Persian, Babylonian, and Elamite which are all relatives of the ancient Sumerian text and language. And they're all written in a cuneiform script. So we got uh, to the task of deciphering each of those three cuneiform scripts. And so when we were, when we deciphered those, then we were able to go back in time and basically reverse engineer Babylonian, Akkadian, and then Sumerian. So it was all due to the Behistun inscription right there that we were able to finally read Sumerian. And I detailed that whole process in my book. There's a few uh, different scholars that played a huge role in that. Um, I won't go too deep into it in this presentation, but um, just to sum it up, um, famed Assyriologist Samuel Noah Kramer, as you'll see in uh, image number 30. All right, let's go to (laughs) this one. Where was it? Right there. Just past This dude? Before that guy. This dude? No, before him. Right there. Yeah. Okay. So that's so that's Samuel Noah Kramer, one of the most famous Assyriologists, wrote a, a lot on the Sumerians, Assyrians. And so um, he accredited uh, Edward Hinks, um, Henry uh, Rawlinson, and Jules Opert as the holy triad of cuneiform decipherment. So it was those three dudes who, that I detail in my book that were able to decipher this for us. And it was actually uh, Jules Oper who decided to call these people the Sumerians because he realized in certain tablets that we were finding, we kept coming across these titles of kings who were calling themselves kings of Sumer and Akkad. We knew about Akkad at that time, but we didn't know about Sumer. So they were like, yo, there's this other place called Sumer. And we kept finding these tablets that were written in cuneiform, but in a language we couldn't understand. Because cuneiform is just, it's a style of writing. It's a font. It's not a language. 
So, so we kept finding these tablets that were written in cuneiform font or style, but in a language we didn't understand. So eventually, after we cracked the Behistun inscription through the works of Hanks, Rawlinson, and Opert, we were able to finally understand Sumerian. And that's how we got the story of the Anunnaki. Cool. And should we mention, Sumer was not just one monolithic empire. It was different provinces and nobles and whatever. It was never, I think only... The Hammurabi was able to create like a consolidate the kingdom or yeah well Hammurabi came came uh much later pretty much after Sumer was already gone but mm -hmm. you're right Sumer as I detail it in the book too Sumer was never like a unified kingdom it was always city states right. and kind of like capture the flag you know, there was always one ruler rising up from one city state trying to take it all over and it was just always going back and forth back and forth and we have some pretty brutal uh stories coming from their text about that those times of you know one king rising up and just killing everybody from that city and taking over and so it was just a constant battle excuse yes. me and uh the sumerians actually called themselves the sagiga the black-headed people so they didn't call themselves the Sumerians. It was the, uh, I believe, the Akkadians uh, who called themselves the Sumerians, which was, mm. which uh, means land of the kings. Mm. Interesting. But uh, yeah, there's, there's, I detail it in the book. There, there's just a, a long history. Pretty much all of Sumer's early histories, them fighting with each other, and and each city had its own ruler, its own priest, and its own patron uh, deity, its own god that you know they justified everything through and uh, towards the end or towards the height of its of its uh you know intellectual um culture it had 12 major city states uh but uh towards the end they were overtaken by the akkadians um through the rulership of sargon of akkad mm. so it was sargon of akkad who came through first um who pretty much took advantage of their vulnerability you know, of the, of the fact that they were never unified. So he came through and, and took advantage of that and was able to take it all under his rulership. And uh, I'm just looking at the pictures here. I don't think I have a picture of him, but the whole story of Sargon is very interesting too. So Sar Sargon, we, we know very little of, but we do have some texts and some seemingly autobiographical texts of his. And, the Akkadians worshipped Inanna, so they actually worshipped the goddess. And in one of his autobiographical texts, it is stated that he was born from a, a priestess. His mother was a priestess of the temple of Inanna. Mm. And as she became pregnant, she had to hide that pregnancy. And so she hid the pregnancy, and then she, she birthed uh, Sargon. And she put him in a basket and floated him down a river. Mm -hmm. That like sounds familiar. I've heard that before. Oh, yes, Moses, of course. Yeah, right? Yeah, so you have all of these stories and all of these motifs and stuff going back to the Sumerians and, and the early Mesopotamians. But as Sargon was floated down the river, as the tales say, he was picked up by this uh, humble gardener from Sumer known as Aki. And Aki raised him, and then eventually he he grew to be you know strong and realized who he was and his and where he came from. There was a sort of like immaculate conception thing there too, because he never knew his father, so he never. So there's there this weird immaculate conception thing going on there too. But he appealed to the normal people because at that time all the Sumerian kings justified what they did um, through the gods, saying that the gods you know allowed them to do this. But Sargon um, justified what he did through his works. He said, you know, I'm a humble leader. You know, I was raised like you by a farmer and so on and so forth. So the, he kind of appealed to the people in that way and then was able to take over and ruled Sumer and Akkad for 50 years. And one of the first things that he did when he uh, ruled was institute his daughter and Heduana as the high priestess of the temple of Ur, the main temple in Sumer um, of Inanna. So he made her the high priestess there of Inanna. So they worshiped the goddess, which is a pretty stark contrast to the Sumerians who were primarily worshiping uh, the male deities. And she wrote the tale of Inanna or the myth of Inanna, didn't she? She wrote a lot of uh, poems. Um, poems, okay, Praising Inanna, okay. yeah. So, um, yeah, so you have the Sumerians, they get taken over by the Akkadians, and the Akkadians have a pretty short rule, too, because outside of them, there are these other nomads 
who are also gaining a lot of traction. And uh, these nomads, in particular, the Gudians, um, came out of came out of nowhere and uh, swooped down and just like barbarians, kind of just started destroying everything. And so there was this chaotic period in the kingdom of Sumer when there there was no ruler. It was just these barbarians running rampant, and everything was just kind of just crazy. And we have a Babylonian text about this, known as known as the uh, the curse of Agade, which is another word for Akkad. And I'll read to you here a paraphrase. Enlil brought out of the mountain those who did not resemble other people, who are not reckoned as part of the land, the Gudians, an unbridled people with human intelligence, but canine instincts and monkeys' features. Like small birds, they swooped on the ground in great flocks. Because of Enlil, they stretched their arms out across the plain like a net for animals. Nothing escaped their clutches. No one left their grasp. Mm. awesome pretty weird right i mean they're mentioned as uh these wild people with uh canine instincts and monkey features i don't know what right. they meant by that but uh go ahead you had something to say no no i was saying uh vance you have a question or um there's one on that there? from a way back um uh, from dk ultra was uh, one of our super chat guys uh he was this is a little bit out of sequence here but he was wondering um in relation to ukraine uh where the illyrian if the illyrians came into play uh, is there a link with the anunnaki and, and the illyrians illyrians um how do you spell it i-l-l-y-r-i-a-n-s i think that's uh, that's why he's spelling it i'm not familiar with with those people so yeah, I, neither I, can't, I can't uh can't okay. help you there, brother, but I'll look into it. Okay. And uh, that's 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 it. I did have a question too, which is uh, we didn't talk about Planet X yet. Is it coming? When is it going to get here? <laughs> <laughs> and there you have it, you shining crazy diamonds. Eddie's research keeps the intensity going in the second part including tying Jesus to the Anunnaki. Please support this Red Pill Cafeteria if you find any value in the content. It will cost you less than a buck per episode, and that's a deal of many lifetimes. As I often mention, if you need any complete shows because of the financial stress due to Archon Monkey Shines, just let me know. Heck and heckity. I've given cats temporal subs because they just needed some necessary gnosis. We're all in this together and no one here is getting rich. The alternative spirituality and philosophy of the Gnostics are more critical than ever in this Philip K. Dick world and Gnostic times. But this is our time to shine like crazy diamonds. We high priests and priestesses of Hermes, the god of thieves, and Sophia, the goddess of smugglers. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. <laughs> <laughs>